You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software, and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. You know, before I get into um, today's guest, I want to kind of share something with you guys. Whenever I'm sitting down to kind of record the introduction portion of the episode, uh, usually it's going back and looking at my notes and just kind of giving a quick recap of, of the conversation that I had. Um, I never know what I want to say just to kind of say hello, <laughs> you know, uh, I'd always feel so silly that uh, I spend five, 10 minutes, 15 minutes kind of replaying it in my head. Okay, like how should I introduce things today? Because I feel like I say the same thing every week. So I had to get that off my chest. So if every week you tune in, and you're like, oh, he's saying the same thing again. Uh, I apologize. I'm just I'm not that creative. I can't come up with anything else. So today's guest is none other than John Mulligan, and John is the founder of 2% Certified Bourbon Barrel Game Calls. Um, Many of you probably uh, know John um, from social media and all this stuff. He's got uh, a TV show, uh, Arrow Wild TV. Um, He has his Johnny Utah Creative, uh, creating content, uh, film work, videography. videography, uh, and then uh, as well as obviously Bourbon Barrel Game Calls, which just launched, uh, I think, three years ago. Um, Super cool uh, episode, and this is the first time I've ever uh, had the chance to talk to John, and I actually was able to learn quite a bit about him and and his upbringing um, in Kentucky, uh, you know, how up until, you know, he was, gosh, I think in his 20s, um, you know, he had never hunted before, uh, in his life. So it, it wasn't one of those scenarios where he started at a young age and it was just passed down from generation 
uh, he tells a pretty funny story um, in hindsight uh, about his first um, interaction with a deer, just seeing one, you know, driving down the road. Um, John talks about his, you know, former line of work being a police officer and how that kind of, uh, you know, helped him dive deeper into the outdoors, how the two um, different uh, lifestyles of, you know, the very fast paced, intense uh, line of work uh, of a police officer, as opposed to, you know, being in a very tranquil, quiet, peaceful setting in the woods, how the two really offset each other and how he was able to use those um, to kind of balance uh, his life. Uh, in terms of just kind of finding harmony. Uh, we talk about some things that happen in life and, and how the woods really helps us kind of cope um, with maybe loss or tragedy or just, you know, really big life events. Um, so we kind of take a, a little detour when talking about that, but it was it was super interesting and I was glad that we got to speak about that. Um, then obviously we get to, to talk a good deal about bourbon barrel game calls, um, you know, where that idea came from, kind of the the idea behind it, um, you know, being from Kentucky, bourbon and, and the whole nine yards and how everything kind of plays off of, of the bourbon theme, uh, which is super cool. Um, and then obviously the conservation side of things, you know, John's been involved with 2% for conservation on a personal, uh, on a personal side, um, almost since the beginning of 2% or maybe actually right from the beginning, uh, that 2% started. Um, and then when he started this company, obviously it was, you know, for him, it was just a, a very easy decision, um, to become certified. Uh, he's doing some great work with the NWTF, uh, and turkeys, you know, again, anyone who's followed along with John has, uh, seen him, uh, in the quest for the, uh, Turkey grand slam with his bow over the past two years. Um, so really cool. Um, yeah, just all around a really fun episode. I had a really uh, good time getting to to know John more uh, and what felt like a bit more of a personal level. So episode 57, John Mulligan. Enjoy, everyone. Uh, before we get into the episode with John, I just want to take a minute to tell you about our partners over at Wild Rivers Coffee. Um, Marshall and Sammy, the owners of Wild River Coffee, are awesome people. They're super passionate about not only coffee, the outdoors, uh, and conservation, but really just the lifestyle of being able to give back. Um, that's why at Wild Rivers Coffee, they're roasting in small batches so that they can ensure that your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Um, Wild Rivers Coffee is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation, and they believe in preserving the wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. Uh, so that's why everything that they sell, a portion of their proceeds, are donated to a conservation organization that are near and dear to them. So you're going to get organizations like Trout Unlimited, uh, Ducks Unlimited, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, and Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Uh, so definitely be sure to head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. Uh, order your fresh roasted beans. Uh, they've got really cool handmade mugs over there. Uh, a ton of sweet merchandise. Um, I think the trout shirt that they have is my favorite. Um, I like blue. Uh, and I believe Sammy did all of the artwork on that. Super talented. Super cool shirt. Super soft. Uh, again, this is coming from a guy who sells shirts as well. And I, I really like what they have there. Um, go over there. And while you're there, use the code all caps, fish underscore wildlife, and you're going to save 10% off your order. Um, again, I, I've i had all of their coffees. I'm a big fan of all of them. The Guatemalan blend, uh, as I've said in the past, is my go-to. Uh, definitely be sure to check them out. So again, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. 
All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast today the founder of 2% Certified Bourbon Barrel Game Calls, John Mulligan. John, how's it going today, man? How are you, bud? I'm doing good, man. I appreciate you uh, being able to make some time. I know I just kind of reached out a day or two ago, and we were able to get this on the book, so uh, I'm excited to learn more about the business. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah. So kind of before we get into the business side of things, uh, I kind of want to learn more about you and really the path that you took to kind of get to to where you're at today. So uh, first off, how was it that you were really introduced to, to hunting and fishing in the outdoors? So growing up in central Kentucky, we actually didn't have white-tailed deer um, when, I was a, when I was a teenager, you know, young kid. And although I grew up in the country, a lot of central Kentucky is a lot of horse pasture okay. um, and cattle. And if there was an ag field, it was predominantly it was going to be tobacco. Um, it's only seems like in the last 10 years that corn and beans has gotten more popular, you know, in, in central Kentucky. But I remember I was probably 16 years old and I was driving home from, from work one day. Um, and, and a, a whitetail doe actually jumped over my car. (laughs) Um, yeah. And, and it freaked me out probably more so because it was a deer. (laughs) <laughs> so that was the first white-tailed deer that I'd ever seen on the hoof before in my life uh, was when I was 16 years old. Could you imagine thinking, I mean, thinking back to where you're at now and, and all the deer that, that you've killed yeah. and, and all the hunting that you've done that at 16, you're like, oh my gosh, like that was a deer. Like it was almost yeah. like seeing Sasquatch, right? Yeah, right, right. Well, and I, and then it wasn't too long after that and it very well probably was the same doe that my dad saw, but my dad um, told me, he's like, yeah, I saw a deer today and this will put it in perspective as to how little I knew about deer is I was like, well, was it a male or a female? Like I didn't know buck or doe. Yeah. That wasn't in my vocabulary, you know? So, um, and then, you know, you fast forward when I, when I started going to college, there was some of my fraternity brothers that they had done some hunting in different parts of the state. And again, I didn't really know, I didn't, I didn't know too much about it cause I'd never been. So it wasn't really anything that happened. But when I moved to Northern Kentucky, uh, after my degrees in horticulture and turf management, but after, after college, um, I got, a, I got a job policing with the Florence police department, just shy of Cincinnati, Ohio. And one of my buddies that I was a cop with, he was from Texas. Like Ar- he grew up in Arlington, you know, Fort Worth, Dallas area. Yeah. And, uh, and he's like, dude, we ought to get into deer hunting. And I was like, yeah, sounds cool to me. Like, where do you start? And I went to the public library and I got a book on whitetail deer hunting and read it front to back. And at the same time, we were basically going to Walmart and I bought my first Winchester 270 at Walmart. And I just had like a cheap, like Simmons scope on it that I think came with the gun, you know, when I bought it. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, got some Walmart camo, and and we went out almost every day, every off day we could that season. And I never even saw, like, I didn't even see a deer. I'm like, this is the stupidest this, thing. This is terrible. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, who who does this? And I remember asking my dad. Um, he's like, yeah, I heard you've been getting into hunting. I'm like, yeah, I'm about ready to get out of it. You know. <laughs> uh, he's like, I went one time when I was when I was younger. Like and he told me, he's like, I was a toddler maybe, or, or, you know, wasn't quite a teenager, but some buddies had taken him hunting one time. And he goes, 
It rained the whole day, and I never saw anything. And I sat there bell to bell. And when his buddy showed up with flashlights to come get him out of his tree stand, he actually gave one of his buddies his rifle. I was like, <laughs> I'll never, ever need this ever again in my life. This is not for me, you know? Um, so I remember calling him and asking him about it. And he's like, well, I told you my experience. So, yeah, it's, you know, I'd rather I'd rather fish. But on the very last day of of uh, Kentucky's rifle season, um, I shot a doe and she ran off. But the second doe stayed there. And I was like, well, dang, I guess I missed. So I racked another one, you know, with this bolt action 270, and I shot another one. And they were maybe, you know, looking back on it, they were probably 90 yards, 100 yards, something okay. like that. But uh, in a flat field, no obstructions, not a difficult shot, right? And so I shoot the second one, um, and then she runs off. So I'm like, man, I really suck. I missed them both, you know? <laughs> And the, the landowner calls me and he's like, did I hear you shooting down there? I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, did you get anything? And I said, man, I shot at two different does and, and I missed them both. He's like, what do you mean you missed? I'm like, well, they ran off. So he's like, well, I'm going to come down there and check it out. So he, he comes down and we go into the field edge of this field, which is only 30 yards from where they were standing when I shot them. And he's like, you mean these two does that you missed? They were basically <laughs> laying on top of each other. So in Kentucky, when you get your buck tag, you get two doe tags. Okay. So thankfully I was legal. Um, but like I said, I did not know, I, I, you know, I hadn't been around it. I hadn't seen enough, you know, enough impact shots or kill shots to know how the deer was going to react or whatever. But, um, and that kind of started it for me. Then from there, you know, things got a little better, started targeting bucks and even started traveling a little bit, hunting with some family in Arkansas and, you know, doing some stuff, got into doing a little bit of turkey hunting, uh, as well, just cause I, I found myself enjoying the woods that I wanted to be out there as much as possible. So I was like, well, and I can go out in the spring and chase turkeys. And, and I don't know how much I was really into turkeys. Then I was just into the woods, right. you know, and I just wanted to be out there. Um, and then I clearly remember the last, the last animal that I shot was in 2007. I shot a buck with a rifle and I didn't get that heart pumping, you know, like that buck fever. Right. Like, uh, I just, I felt nothing. So my buddy comes over and he says, dude, you don't seem that jacked up. And I was like, man, that's just kind of easy. You know, like I shot that deer at 300 yards and he didn't know that I existed on planet earth. Right. You know? So I was like, I just don't think that the, you know, this is for me. And the, the, the gun shop, the local gun shop and the local bow shop, he was a Matthews dealer. And he says, uh, so are you just not going to hunt anymore? I was like, yeah, I, I think I'm done. Um, I was like, I think I'm just gonna just give it up. You We're tired. Go on top. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, I just feel like, I just feel like I'm. Um, it's just not a much of, it's not a challenge. You know what I mean? Like right. I was like, it feels like I'm shooting fish in a barrel. So he said, what you need is a bow. And I was like, well, that sounds really all well and good, but I've got a toddler at home and my wife will kill me if I drop a thousand dollars on a bow. And so he says, I tell you what, since I'm a Matthews dealer, um, 
we're allowed to give away one bow a year, like a shooter bow. Um, so I just, I don't want to see you get out of hunting. And I'm like, look, you know, I don't have the money to spend on a bow, but I, I'm not asking for a handout. So no, I don't, I don't, I don't feel right taking the bow. I, if I really needed it, I could work some off duty details or some, you know, overtime and I'll come up with the money. And he says, no, no, I'm, I'm getting you a bow. So he gave me the bow. And then of course I had to buy my sight and rest and arrows and yeah. release and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I asked him, I said, why me? And he says, man, I just really feel like you're going to do something in hunting, like for a career at some point in life. And I'm like, yeah, right. We all want to be Michael Waddell. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, right. So um, that's how it all started. And ever since then, I remember when I first I shot my first animal with a bow. And I was like, yep, this is where it's at. Yeah. I will never get sick of this. You so, know, this is a challenge. So how long was it? Um, so you, the, uh, the dealership there, they give you your first bow. And then how long after that did like everything kind of start to come together for you where, you know, you, you felt really confident with the bow. Uh, you did, you know, you were making more trips out of state and everything like that. And, and it just became just this passion. Yeah. So it probably, it probably spanned about five years. Um, and, and I remember that first season, it was like starting from zero again. Right. Every time I went to draw, I'd get busted, you know, and oh, I yeah, didn't know when to draw there. and yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was just horrible. And, um, and, and again, I was hunting out of tree stands, you know, eight foot off the ground without any cover, nothing to break up silhouette. I mean, there was a combination of not knowing the animals up close, not knowing concealment, not knowing scent control. I mean, it was a huge learning curve that comes with bow hunting as compared to rifle hunting, you know? And so it took a lot of years, um, before I could really learn that kind of stuff. And then, in 2000, um, I guess it would have been the spring of 2013, I was at a hunting trade show in Ohio, that deer and turkey show that they have in Columbus every year, and I met Todd Prignitz. And it was like, I'd never met you before, I've seen your DVDs, and him and I just hit it off, and it was like instantly best friends. And he asked me if I would start filming my hunts for, for White Knuckle Productions, and then I ended up becoming a co-owner of Wicked Tree Gear. Okay. So, um, and actually, that's Dan. You know, Dan was still involved. You know, at that time as well. Uh, Dan was heading up sales, and and I was doing some sales. Um, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't until about a year and a half after that that I ended up becoming part owner of Wicked. But, and then in the 2013 actual fall hunting season, that's when things got serious. You know. Uh, it seems like that's when everything started to come together and obviously I'll never master bow hunting. None of us ever will, but that was like from the 2012 to 13 season for me, that was the big jump. That's like when that light clicked and I'm going, okay, scent control, decrease, you know, entry exit points and, and minimize your pressure and study trail cameras and, uh, it just seemed like that's when everything f- officially clicked and yeah. I made a big jump as far as my success. You know, I felt like I made a big jump. Um, and then, you know, you just keep trying to work on it every year after that. Yeah. It's definitely a, an ever evolving process, right? I mean, especially 
if you like you mentioned, you know, you're, you're hunting a lot of different states. So mm. terrain's different, you know, just the potentially the, the pressure on the deer is different. I mean, there's all these different elements and factors that go into, uh, you know, being successful or, or putting yourself in the best position to be successful in that hunt. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. So let's say, so 2013 is when things kind of really changed. At what point did you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make this a career now. I mean, you were part owner of the company, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the whole experience and and kind of your approach had changed. You felt like things were really kind of starting to fall in place. At what point did you, you know, make that next, that, that next jump? Yeah. So, you know, while all this is going on, I'm still a police officer in Northern Kentucky and, and, and I was doing my stint with undercover narcotics and, so social media wasn't a thing for me. Right. I couldn't really, I couldn't put out stuff like that. And it felt kind of awkward even with the hunting DVDs. But my hopes were the people that are buying and selling heroin hopefully aren't watching hunting videos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that was my hopes. So um, in 2000, in late 2015 is when Tecamani Holdings had approached Todd and I about buying Wicked Tree Gear. And the the way the deal was laid out was I had to come work for Tecamani for three years full time as a marketing director of all of their brands. So that was when the decision was like, okay, I you know I have an option here. I yeah. can pursue something in the hunting industry, or I can stay and I've only got four and a half years left to a full police pension. Ah, and so that was a, that was not you know wasn't an easy decision. But I was really, I was really getting burned out of policing, really bad. Um, still have so much respect for the profession and the job and people that have done it, but I didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, you know what I mean. And um, so, anyways, that kind of helped make my decision. And you know, of course, I had buddies that were like, "Dude, you're like 38 years old. Like, like, what are you thinking? You know, this is kind of this is a move you make when you're 20." You right. know, this isn't what you make when you have three children at home and a wife. But for me, I, I like I didn't care. It was all about doing what I wanted to do that would bring me ultimate satisfaction and whatnot. And so I, I made the leap, left policing, moved to southeast Iowa, did the thing with Tecamani for three years. And then when that gig was up, um, I had already started Arrow Wild TV. I had branched away from White Knuckle and started my own show. And um, so when the three years was up, I was like, okay, it's it's time to it's time to make a run at this on my own two feet. And started doing freelance photography under the Johnny Utah Creative brand, Arrow Wild TV under that brand. And uh, and you know, here we are today. I'm still still able to at least buy ramen noodles from time to time <laughs> so there's a few things that you <clears throat> excuse me that you touched on there one i'd asked you before uh we started recording there how you got the nickname and then i think yep. i maybe had read or, or saw you had posted somewhere that you used to be a police officer so so that makes total mm-hmm. sense but then when you just said that you were working undercover in narcotics then mm-hmm. then the whole picture kind of comes together yeah. as far yeah. as the uh the nickname so very fitting yeah um yeah and I would imagine when you said you, you kind of at that crossroads, you know, and you had to make that, that tough decision, whether to stick it out for another four years or, you know, mm-hmm. kind of jump ship, if your heart wasn't in it, you know, and it just, you were burned out and you just didn't love what you were doing anymore, especially the, 
the 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 area that you are working in within the police force that's got to be an area where you can't kind of be tuned out right you've got to be on all the time right yeah when you're yeah when you're kicking in doors like that every day um and you're running anywhere from three to seven man teams and stuff like that you know everybody has a job and um yeah you have to be plugged in yeah 24 hours a day and I was just starting to hate the job I loved the guys I was working with and I truly felt like we were doing a good job you know especially when we were doing stuff in that whole metro Cincinnati area you know we weren't just messing with dime bags of weed or something you know right um but it was it was it was a big big decision um but again I kept finding myself like the hunting side is what would disconnect me from like the concrete jungle so to speak yeah and i needed that balance like that was my ebb and flow was i had to have enough woods time to have enough to have my head right for the concrete time you know and vice versa so once i uh, truthfully like identified okay i love the outdoors and i love hunting and i love bow hunting and um this is what i want to do I have to find a way to make this work, Yeah, you know? And so I was willing to sacrifice it all to, for a, just a sheer chance to try, you know, hope and dreams. Yeah. Cause you don't want to look back in, in four or five years after that and, and kind of regret the decision that you would have made. So no kudos to you, because like you said, at that point in your life with three kids, a wife and, and everything like that, I mean, yeah, that that's a big gamble, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's those gambles that people take when it's kind of at a uncertain, maybe not uncertain time in their life, but at, a time in their life when they maybe shouldn't be making drastic changes, that that's when like yeah. the best stories come out of it. That's when people really have success. That's when, you know, they, they realize that it was the right decision to make and they're glad that they did it. Yeah. And even, you know, it's funny cause even this earlier today, I was talking to a buddy of mine, Tanner, and we were actually just talking about those, like, when is it the right decision to make things? And, and I think, I think what's happened is in society, like for years, people were taught, you know, you go to high school, you go to college, you go and get your job and that's where you retire. Yeah. Like I couldn't imagine finding my 22 year old job and work that job until I die. Like that's crazy to me. So, um, you know, Hey, 40 is the new 20, you know, like I've got a lot of good years before they take me out to pasture. So (laughs) I'm like, let's just, keep grinding and doing what you want to do. And, um, and, you know, and, and I've also said before, like I've been a rich man, I've been a poor man and I've done that a couple of different times in my lifetime. Um, it takes those humbling, low cash flow, financial instability moments to make you realize what's actually important. And as long as I have a camera and a bow and food, I'm good. Yeah. I don't really need a whole lot else. Yeah, well, that kind of brings me to to something I wanted to ask you is, you know, anyone that follows along with whether it's, you know, your personal page, uh, um, well, probably more so your your personal page there is you have a a motto, work more hours, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me how that kind of came about, because I think that's just a, it's it's a super cool like way to live your life. So tell me about that. Yeah. So when I was, I was probably 15 years old. I was saving money for my first car, you know, in Kentucky, you have to be 16 to get your driver's license, but I was saving for my first car and it wasn't going so hot. (laughs) And so 
I remember I, I asked my dad, I go, dad, how do you, how do you make more money? And he's like, you just work more hours. And I'm like, that's stupid. That's like, of course, looking back on it now, I was like, that's like some Ricky Bobby stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, and he's like, no, you just work more hours. And I was like, well, so I took it to heart in a very one dimensional way. If you want to make more money, you just got to work more hours. Maybe it's 50 hours that week. Maybe it's 60 hours that week, whatever the case may be. Um, and that's the way I took it. But I was like, that's fine. My dad always instilled a big work ethic in me. And and so that was kind of my driving force my whole life was like, whatever you want, you're just going to have to work more hours. You want to buy a new boat or go vacations or whatever, just work some overtime. You know, there's no shortcuts. There's no get rich quick schemes, no pyramid scams. Right. So then as I got older, it actually started to make more sense to me that what he actually meant was just a, a general life motto of if you want to have a better connection with God, well, then focus on your faith more. You want to have a better marriage? You better invest some time and put in some work into your marriage. Yeah. If you want to raise your kids right, well, you better work at it because naturally they're, they can be shitheads, you know? So <laughs> if they're if you're not careful. So like um, that was, you know, you want to kill bigger deer, you better work at it. Sure, everybody gets lucky from time to time, but if you want to do it consistently, like it's going to take work. And whether it's food plots or scouting or trail cameras or whatever, you know, scent control. So that was, I have literally taken that motto and I've applied it to, I've never found a thing in life that it doesn't work for. Right. Um, so unfortunately, this past December, uh, my father passed away um, with a, a very fast, short battle with cancer. But he died um, December 16th. And so right after that, I launched a brand called Work More Hours. Okay. And it's workmorehours.com. And it's literally just hats and shirts with just the simple message, work more hours. And it's funny. Every once in a while, I run across people and they're like, work more hours. That's stupid. You're not supposed to work until you die. I'm like, it's not like labor. You know, yeah. like think about it. Whatever you want out of life, you got to put the hours in. You got to yeah. work for it. Um, so, and I think for a lot of people, they struggle with how to get better at something instead of just getting to work. Yeah. You know, like, why think about it? Just start putting in the work. Yeah. You know, like, paralysis by analysis kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, and I, and, you know, and that was, in looking back on it, that was a big thing in policing too. Like, when we were doing building entries, like if I get stuck in the doorway, that's, that's not a good place to be. Right. Like it's all about speed. Even if it's the wrong speed, make a decision. You know, squirrels die every day on the road cause they don't make a decision. <laughs> so I'm just like, make a decision, stick to it and go. And if you, and if it's the wrong decision, well, at least you got there fast and you've got time to redirect or reinvent and, and try to figure it out. But if you spend 20 minutes trying to make a decision, it's a bad one, then that may be the only time you get to swing the bat. So just swing away, work more hours. Um, and then the way it's worked out with work more hours is every dollar from that business strictly goes to fund uh, a memorial race. I, I raced stock cars for a okay. little while in life, and my dad was a big stock car fan. So every year we're actually – we're this July, July 23rd will be the first annual, but we're doing a big memorial race, um, at a dirt track down in Kentucky for my dad. And, 
that's what that business is there for is basically just to fund this memorial race every year in his honor, you know? Yeah. Well, first off, I, I'm sorry to hear about the <clears throat> the loss of your father. Uh, I lost my father to cancer as well. Uh, it was about 11 or 12 years ago now, but it was kind of, I don't want to, I mean, no cancer and no situation is the same, but it was a very sure. uh, quick uh, decline, you know? And, yeah, you know, it sounds like you were obviously had a very close relationship with your dad and, you know, he instilled oh, yeah. in you a, a lot of, you know, really important messages and, and that work more hours, I think is something that, is relatable to every single person in every walk of life. So to create, you know, a business to, to, you know, essentially help create a, you know, to, to raise money for the, for the fund, like you just mentioned, I mean, that's, that's an awesome thing to do, man. I, I really commend you on that. Yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. It was one of those weird deals. Like I was, um, I was hunting in Kansas with a buddy of mine, Nate from Headhangers, And it was day three of the hunt when I got the phone call. Um, he went to the went to the doctor's office with a chest cold and came home uh, with a diagnosis of stage four cancer. Wow! And so I'm in the middle of this hunt, and I was like, "That's it, hunt's over." You know, yeah. I've lost the drive. I don't even want to be here. So I came home, spent some time with him, and then he passed away. And then I came home from the funeral, and I was literally just moping around the house. And my wife's like, "You know what you need to do? You need to go get in the woods." like immediately. And so I went back to Kansas and, um, you know, killed, killed a buck the first morning I was there, self filmed by myself, cried like a little baby all by myself. Um, but it was in a weird way, like to me, that was working more hours. I made two trips, you know, I made a second trip to go finish what I started. And, um, and it was actually, that was a hunt I wanted to do by myself. You know what I mean? I, I wanted to be by myself and I didn't kill a pig by any means. Um, but as soon as I saw the buck, I was like, oh yeah, I'm killing this deer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The woods has a, an interesting way of kind of reconnecting people mm-hmm. with potentially, you know, a lost loved one. Um, like, I mean, it's weird to say it and we're, <laughs> we're kind of getting pretty deep here and, and that's all right. But it, it you know every time I'm in the tree stand, man, I'm always kind of like having these little self conversations with myself, kind of with my dad, you know. And yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's amazing, you know, what that bit of solitude in the woods uh, can mm-hmm. really open your mind up to. Yeah, oh, it, and it ironically, it's funny. Like it happened today, earlier today, I had actually flipped on TV for just a second, and there was a, a commercial that I saw. It was like the dumbest commercial in the world. It had no, it wasn't even about a father and a son, but there was just something in the scene. And I was like, God, I'm never going to be able to pick up the phone and call my dad again, you know? And, um, and, and I've got buddies that, you know, they kind of coached me a little bit in the early stages and they said, Hey, like this is, um, it's going to be like that forever. There will just every six months, every three months, there'll be something that'll come up and it'll hit you pretty hard for about 10 or 15 minutes. But, and you know, in policing, you know, doing that policing where I was at, I mean, it was high volume, you know, 40, 40 calls per man per shift. Okay. And, you know, you sprinkle a few rapes and robberies and murders in there as well. And it was, um, 
policing teaches people that you can't grieve. Like you're not really allowed to grieve. Like you're kind of a robot. You yeah. just, you know, react and go on and whatever. And, and I, unfortunately I had a couple of my cop buddies that reached out to me as well. And they said, Hey, this is one time that you're not going to be able to compartmentalize this. Yeah. This is one that you're going to have to actually grieve and, and process and deal with it. Yeah. Cause it'll eat this one will be an infection that'll eat you up from the inside. Um, so, you know, and my wife, she reminded me of that as well. Um, and it, and it helped, it helped actually processing it, but you're right. The woods guy has a funny way of being like that control alt delete to like <laughs> resync up everything yeah. back in the world again. Yeah, no, that, um, and, and really again, I think that's why so much of us do it. And a lot of us have a hard time explaining that, you know, Cause it's really easy to be like, Oh, there's just a bunch of bloodthirst killers. They just want to go out there and shoot stuff. Yeah, I'm like, yep. yeah, I do, but I want to do it out in the woods and I want to, you know what I mean? Like yep. it's sometimes it's hard to explain. Yeah. No, especially to, to someone who hasn't experienced that here. You know, I, I hate to say necessarily a non hunter, but maybe someone who just hunts a little bit differently than, than, than you or I sure. do. It's yeah. It's hard to yep. really put into words unless they've experienced it. Correct. Yep. hundred yep. percent. So obviously you have, um, you know, your hand in, in a lot of different things there. So, um, what else besides, uh, what you've already listed? So I know you have, uh, you mentioned the photography and the arrow wild TV. So how did, you know, how, how are you kind of balancing all of this stuff that you have going on? Um, Adderall and illegal. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, I, I, you know, some people perform very well when they're under high stress situations. And I compliment a lot of that to my background. Yeah. Um, but, and also having a, a father who was like relentless, you know, I'm four years old and he's like, you better have all eight acres mowed in that cattle pasture before the end of the day <laughs> on the tractor that I have blocks tied to the pedals. Cause I can't reach them. <laughs> uh, but that was my dad. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like, do you think you can do it? He was just like, get it done. And so I've kind of always been that way. Like, I don't really always figure out how I'm going to do something. I just, you know, just get busy, you yeah. know? Um, and, you know, you throw in also, you throw in bourbon barrel calls with it. But, um, and we can talk about that. But it's a very understanding wife yeah. is key is that is clutch. Um, I got really, really, really lucky. And, and we've talked about it before where I said, why, why me? Yeah. She's like, well, you go first. I'm like, well, you had a nice butt. <laughs> um, she's like, yeah, but why me? And I said, she says, well, cause I knew that you weren't going to be a guy that was going to be like a deadbeat. Yeah. Even from our first date, I knew that you were a very driven person it was almost like some caveman stuff. You know how like women sometimes look at dudes like who's going to be a provider or, you know, who can kill the a, a bison or something with yeah, his bare hands. Right. She looked at me in a way like who's going to always be able to provide and work for the family. Um, so I wish she would have said my good looks, but that's not what I got. <laughs> you know, I got the work ethic thing going for me. So, um, yeah, it's like, what if you're not handsome, you better be handy. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of the deal. But, yeah, I mean, 
it, it takes a lot of balance. Um, it does, it ha it for me, I, there's not a lot of downtime. Yeah. Um, but the key, the key thing underneath all of it is I enjoy work. You know, when people talk about their hobbies, like, Oh, I, I a bowling league and, and I bow hunt. Well, work and bow hunt and photography and weightlifting. Those are my four things that are, you know, and it's crazy to list work as a hobby, Yeah. but like I truly enjoy work. I actually like it when I can't figure something out. I enjoy the struggles of trying to figure it out. Um, that's, that's a hobby. Yeah. So it'll, it, I'll probably die of a heart attack before other people, but you know, I'm doing exactly what I want to do, and I love every single day. Yeah, and so, that's all that anyone can that, ask out of life. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, let, let's talk about uh, Bourbon Barrel Calls. So how did that all come about? Because I think I first saw uh, Bourbon Barrel Calls. It may have been um, you had done something um, like a little uh, promotion type thing with uh, Public Land Tees uh, with Sam and Josh mm -hmm. Soholt there. Um, yep. So, yeah, kind of walk me through the process of how that all got started. So a couple years back, I was hunting in Kentucky. And even though I don't live there, Kentucky still and always will hold a special place. And, and I, was, I was hunting in Kentucky, and I was having a conversation with a buddy. And I said, you know, like with the right marketing and the right back-end story, obviously it has to be a high-quality product. But you can be successful still today in a saturated market. And he's like, no way, no way. There's you no know, stuff's gotten so saturated. It's, it's diluted. It's, it's garbage. And I said, I could do it. And he said, how about Turkey calls? And I was like, oh, you, you rat bastard. <laughs> I was like, that's a pretty saturated one, you know? Um, but it, it became a little bit of a Petri dish for me. I can do my own experiments on it and, and I'll, and this will, this will parlay into, another business, but I was driving, I have an eight and a half hour drive from Kentucky to Iowa. And I was like, man, if you can make Turkey calls out of bourbon wood, I was like, I got to research and find out if the woods thick enough, you know, for the pot, which I found out I can only use the heads. I can't use the staves. Okay. So the heads are about an inch and a quarter inch and an eighth thick. And the staves are usually anywhere from half inch to three eighths, you know, thick. So, I was like, all right, I, I can make it with that. Um, I'm like, man, I wonder how the porosity of the wood's going to change after soaking in alcohol, you know, and that kind of stuff. But the idea came out of doing a branded call and having a, the soundboard be the charred wood, like you're looking inside of an empty barrel and having everything themed around the barrel and bourbon, you know, even the striker's white oak with the hot wax that you know, drips down its wax stamp sealed on, on top, like a maker's bottle and, right. and really just trying to wrap all of that marketing in. And I thought, well, it may be a little gimmicky. So I made one and it sounded really good. And I sent a couple out to some absolute Turkey killers and everybody was like, damn dude, like it actually sounds really good, you know? Um, and I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to launch this. And if now this will be my Etsy, little side hustle project. Yeah. And I might, I might sell 10 calls a year or something and it'll be fun, you know, but what it allowed me to do was in theory is I can try different marketing techniques or campaign strategy or influencer strategy. 
and what I learn and doesn't learn or doesn't work from that, I take that to Johnny Utah Creative, which is a full freelance marketing, social media, photography, videography business and product design. So if I find something that works, then I can take it to my clients through Johnny Utah Creative. Okay. Um, that was the original theory. And then next thing I know, I sell like 400 calls in the first three months. <laughs> and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is a viable business. Yeah. Like, this is a legit business. So that first year that I was running the business was also last year when I was chasing that single season archery grand slam. Yep. And so in between hunts, I'd come home and build 30 or 40 calls and I was back on the road, come home 30 or 40 calls, but you know, back and forth. Um, and I had talked to Sam, you know, about doing some stuff. I was always, you know, Sam and I are good buddies. We actually just, we spoke for a while yesterday on the phone and, um, I wanted to do a partnership deal a little collaboration deal with him and Josh and, and it, they had a cool logo with that first one we did was the gobble yeah. the gobble logo. Yep. I and, remember uh, that. that was super cool. And then, you know, this past year, you know, we did, uh, we did another version, uh, with them as well and that went well, but you know, we had Dudley with knock on TV, you know, he, he bought 110 calls and rumor has it. He sold out in 72 hours on his site, Oh wow! you know, with my call. So that, that went really well. Um, it, it's kind of crazy to see how that, how it's grown. And, and the fun part for me is just coming up with different calls and different sounds. Um, you know, most recently I launched, uh, two new calls. One's called the speakeasy call. And, you know, that was the name of the unsavory underground drinking establishment. Oh yeah. Water yeah, and halls, for sure. You know? Yeah. Sticking with and the theme. Then, Yep. Yep. And then, uh, I did a birds of a feather call and that just, you know, it's a call with a bunch of Turkey feathers, you know, up underneath the crystal. And that's kind of a, more of a play of the, you know, when I was a cop, a lot of my buddies were cops, you know, now that I hunt, a lot of my buddies hunt. Right. So it's just kind of that birds of a feather type gotcha. deal play on that. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, we offer slate aluminum, copper. Um, we have the crystal crystal calls. Um, we have, there's a moonshiners call that actually has like an old, uh, patinaed copper soundboard underneath the crystal. And it kind of looks like an old copper still, you know, that would be out in the woods somewhere. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, everything stays within that alcohol bourbon theme or I'm just, people think I'm an alcoholic, but that's, <laughs> you know. uh, but it's cool. Um, also was able to do something really neat with, NWTF and the White Oak Initiative. So the White Oak Initiative is a is a team of really smart, super super genius biologists that have basically said through deforestation um, and you know lumber and carpentry and furniture making that our white oaks are being cut down faster than they're growing to maturity. Um, and so this organization said, what we're going to do is we're going to launch this initiative to start doing a reforestation, you know, of white oaks. Um, and NWTF was the, the, one of the, well, it was the only hunting kind of a group, so to speak, entity that was involved with them. And I'm like, well, this is perfect because my barrels are made from white oaks. Okay. My strikers are made from white oaks. 
in the Midwest, turkeys love to roost in white oak trees. Um, so I was like, this is an organization I'd like to get behind. So $5 from every call goes to the NWTF via white oak initiative. So the way they basically split the money, you know, NWTF keeps $2 and 50 cents and white oak initiative gets $2 and 50 cents. Um, so that's, that's one organization that I, you know, deal with. And like you mentioned earlier, um, you know, bourbon barrel calls is, you know, a certified business member of uh, 2% for conservation. And, and I myself have been a member since the day that organization started when Jeff Facito was still at Sitka. Yep. Because uh, I've been a Sitka ambassador since 2015, so I think it was in 2016 that I became a two percent member when he started that. Yeah, yep, that's correct. So, so that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So no, that's really cool that you were able to, or that you you came across, you know, the NWTF and then the White Oak Initiative, and then obviously with with your calls uh, and everything being made from White Oak. I mean, it all kind of goes, you know, very hand in hand, and obviously. You know, again, anyone that's followed along with you over the past, you know, couple of years has watched you, you know, pursue the um, the Grand Slam, uh, the Tricky Grand Slam in the single season, uh, which is super, super impressive. I mean, guys try and get that their whole hunting career, right, and and don't have success, and and you're able to to pull it off in a year. So that's that's really awesome. Um, with a bow, with yeah, a bow with a bow, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, yeah. So are they cost me my second slam this year, basically, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, is there any other organizations that you're working with or just uh, NWTF and the white Oak? Yeah, that's the only two that I'm working with. Um, a few years ago, I was doing some stuff with uh, QDMA yep. and I did a, I did a conservation shirt and it was a hundred percent of the proceeds, uh, the profit, I should say a hundred percent of the profit went to QDMA but it was a shirt. It it was a really simple shirt. It it just said hashtag conservation, which is kind of a tongue in cheek thing because everybody says hashtag conservation when they're looking for clout or likes, right? Uh, but they don't actually do any conservation. And and underneath it, in fine print, it said because buying a license simply isn't enough. Yeah. Um, because some people, and I've heard, and I've heard that. And, and actually this was a hot tub. This was a, uh, this was a big sky Montana hot tub conversation with me, Jason Matzinger and Sam Soholt. And we were talking about conservation and how, well, I bought a license. So I participate in conservation. Well, yeah, technically you do, you know, I'm not going to say you don't, but is that it? Is that the only thing that you're doing to help sustain you know this resource right and support it so um sam was like yeah it's not like you know just buying a tag is enough and i and the very next day i called him and i was like all right dude here's the deal i'm doing a shirt and i'm doing because simply buying a tag isn't enough and it was like oh yeah that basically is summarizes our conversation that we had last night yeah and we were all soaking hot tub after you know, doing attack, you know, the tack day all, I think we both did two courses that day. So we, we had some sore legs yeah, and oh backs yeah. and stuff like, um, so yeah, that's how that whole thing came about. And I think we did, I don't know, probably sold about a hundred shirts okay. or something. 
um, made a nice donation to QDMA. I should probably do something like that again here soon. That was a fun, that was a kind of a fun little collaboration. Yeah. And <laughs> what you said about, you know, just buying a license, you know, while yes, technically it is considered, you know, conservation. Um, I've had Jared Frazier on a few times and, and that was one of the things that he had said in one of the episodes was like, you know, just buying your fishing license or hunting license and saying you're a conservationist is kind of like a participation trophy, right? Like exactly. everyone yeah. gets that, whether right. you, you shoot it, you shoot an animal, you catch a fish or you don't like everyone can say that, but it's the people that are, yeah. you know, putting in the, the time outside of that, donating money, um, you know, outside of that and getting the boots on the groundwork that are, you know, true conservationists kind of, in my opinion. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, so you said you're making all those calls there yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So now that things have grown, like there's certain parts of the process that's farmed out yeah. just for speed. Yeah. You know, um, if I was hand turning every single pot, I couldn't keep up with it myself. So instead of trying to hire a team for seasonal work, which it, it's mostly seasonal, um, I actually have a company that does all the lathe. They lathe all of the pots okay. uh, on a big CNC machine. Yeah. Um, they are all original pot designs. You know, I didn't, I'm not just taking a stock pot and turning them into my stuff. You know, they, they are, they are my design and I had to pay a company to do, I think it's called a DXF or DXG file, which is like the CAD, DWG. You know, CAD file. DWG. There you go. Yeah. So I had to have one of those files done. And, um, and so, you know, I cut all the blanks and then there's a, uh, a kiln dry process, you know, to make sure that I get my moisture of the pot where it needs to be. So it's workable. And then, uh, then those get sent, sent off and then he sends the pots back to me. Then there's a little bit of finish work that goes on to them. Um, but every single striker and every pot gets assembled and made right in the bourbon barrel headquarters, which is currently located in my basement. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. The, your Bill Gates story. Bourbon, I love bourbon it. barrel world, worldwide. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, when, back when you were, you know, doing everything yourself, how long would it take to, to, you know, fully assemble or fully make one call for you? Two, two a day. Two a day. Okay. So yeah, yeah, I can see how, yeah. If you're selling 400 in the first three months that, yeah, production would start yeah. to uh, suffer a little bit if it was just you. Yep, yep, and and I, you know, and I had a I had a family member early on that was actually gonna you know engage in the business with me, and and the first order that came in was for twenty five calls. I'm like, dude, that's twelve and a half days. <laughs> like, this isn't gonna work, yeah. you know. So that was immediately where I knew things needed to shift and they needed to scale um, quickly, yeah. you know. Yeah. So sticking with, with conservation here, kind of a, a broad question, but you know, what would your definition of conservation be? Um, I think a, a very vague answer would be, you know, any effort to increase or protect, you know, um, a resource. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's and a, that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. That resource could be plants or animals, you know, yeah, no, that's a very good way to uh, a very yeah broad answer, but it it kind of 
covers in totality, you know, whether it's the habitat that these animals are living in or the animals themselves. Yeah. So as someone who, you know, obviously is, is very heavily involved in the outdoors, whether it's through, you know, bourbon barrel calls, you know, Arrow Wild TV, uh, you know, the list goes on and on your photography business. You know, what is or what would your suggestion be for for someone who's, you know, maybe new to the hunting industry or the fishing industry um, and, you know, or maybe they've been around in it for a long time, but now they they've realized that they want to become, you know, more engaged and more active in conservation. Um, Obviously, I think there's there's several good podcasts. I've heard that that average conservationist has a decent one. It's all right. Uh, that talks about <laughs> talks about conservation. Um, there's there's several platforms, and then obviously there's several people and organizations that I think are doing a good job. This turkeys for tomorrow. Um, I'm very interested in that. Um, yeah, I've been seeing that I, on social media the last few days. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I think that's huge, and um, obviously two percent, and uh, you know. Like I said, between the podcast, I think there's a lot of education that can come because I think it's real easy when people think, oh, conservation, I need to donate some money. Yeah. Well, where's that money going? Like maybe it's protecting some right-of-ways or like in Iowa, like we don't have any fence lines anymore for quail and pheasants. Right. You know, the farmers are taking out fences so they can hang their their planter you know, two foot over on the neighbors so they can get that last plant on their property line, you know? <laughs> and, um, so that, that's an issue. Um, but, and then outside of the norm, maybe it's a matter of going to something like a state of South Dakota and saying, Hey, how about you guys put a cap on Turkey tags? Because you guys don't have a lot of turkeys. So while we're trying to figure out how we're going to get more turkeys in the Hills, we might want to restrict some license sales because right now there's no cap. And I can tell you from last year to this year, it was insane. The reduction of turkeys that I saw in the Hills. Really? Um, something's going on. So I, I don't know. I mean, it could very well be a totality of things. It could be predation. It could be over hunting. Um, it does seem like the turkey hunting has gotten a lot more popular in the hills the last couple of years, um, probably because idiots are making episodes about doing their grand slam in the Black Hills. <laughs> <laughs> that might have. Some, I'm not helping the situation, but like, um, and you know, you hear these articles and the theories about the the gnats, you know, that are getting up into the nostrils and suffocating turkeys. And like I said, I don't know that there's any one solution. But, uh, but you know, one, until we figure those other things out, one thing we can do is restrict some sales. Even if it means I don't get to hunt South Dakota next year, I'm cool with that. Yeah. As long as somebody's making an effort. I've always said, I don't care if it's the right decision or the wrong decision, but show me the effort yeah. that you're really trying to make a legitimate improvement. Um, you know, not some stupid half witted, you know, Oh, we're going to try this. And I'm like, really? That's not going to work. Nobody thinks that's going to work. Like, that's just a waste of time. But if somebody makes a legitimate effort to make something better, hey, cool. Yeah. We'll see if it works. Yeah, you, you got to try something. You can't just sit back and continue to do what you're doing and expect expect any type of change, right? I mean, that's, that's right. the definition of insanity right there. Yeah, yeah, like waiting for Mother Nature. Oh, well, it'll all turn around. 
Yeah. These raccoons are going to stop eating turkey eggs tomorrow. Yeah, no. they're all going to they're all going to go meat eaters and no longer <laughs> yolk and vegan eaters. Yeah, all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. So, yep. where do you say where? I mean, you picked up hunting, you know, later on in life. So, where would you say mm-hmm. your your conservation, you know, mindset really comes from? Um, well, I think for me, it's not not over engaging in anything, you know, um, I've always said everything is good in moderation, you know? And so like my idea of conservation, I think behind that was I've always had an appreciation of timber and the woods and, uh, having set aside public lands, you know, where somebody's not going to throw a building on or whatever, but Um, I have seen some really awesome farms that got subdivised and then the hunting there was just gone. You know, the hunting, the hunting sucked. Um, and then you have a bunch of houses and it shifts some animals around and whatnot. But I think the easy, easy go-to answer for me on conservation is the reason why I like it is so there is something for future generations to hunt and chase and pursue, whether it's fish or animals, um, I think it's important to, for people to reconnect with the woods. I think it grounds you. It's a little primal, reminds you where we came from. I yeah. mean, there's a reason why we have canines in our teeth <laughs> and it's not for, it's not for crunching peas. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, and for sure. I, I saw something the other day. It made me laugh, which, um, like Bert Soren from Soren X, he has a really cool shirt and it's just like a bow guy shooting a deer, like a cave, like painting or whatever. Yeah. And I, it, so you take that and then I saw a meme the other day and it was like, when's the last time you ever saw a caveman drawing of a hunter shooting some salad? <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed. I thought it was, that was, I got a good chuckle out of that one. Hey, that, that's, that's a really good point though. Right. Yeah. yeah. You don't, you don't see a lot of those in caves. <laughs> no, no. So yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the idea behind conservation is it makes sense, you know, yeah. like you know, do, you know, do everybody do their part and, and make sure that we've all, there's something out there and, and the community continues to thrive. Now, this was a point that I brought up in a working class, uh, podcast here not too long ago. And it's just me playing devil's advocate. So when I first got into hunting, man, I was cool hunting 20, 30 acres. Yeah. And then as you, grow and then you want to start chasing mature deer. So now I want more property. I want more acreage. And so that way I can pass those three-year-olds and I can try to let those get to four and five and six-year-olds if need be. So, but I also want to encourage more people to hunt. I like seeing new people get into hunting. You know what I mean? It's kind of like when I got married, I want all my friends to get married too, right? Yeah. Um, So, All right, so now I'm trying to gather up more acreage, but I'm introducing more people into hunting. At the same time, beyond my control, society is decreasing the acreage of timber because of subdivisions and industry and and just natural deforestation in an urban civilization. So everything is working in the wrong direction, you know? Yeah. So now I've got more people that live in subdivisions that are now trying to go lease ground because they don't have ground that they can hunt because that was used to be a farm. Now it's a subdivision. So now he's competing with a lease. 
So lease prices are going up, you know, supply and demand, right? Um, so it's kind of a weird thing as hunters, you know, it's, and I'm not saying there's a right answer, but it's just something to kind of think about that the shift of hunting of farming for big deer, not everybody can participate in that yeah, because there's just not enough land to do that. Yeah. You bring up some, some really good points there and I've never really kind of looked at it like you, I mean, you said, you know, playing devil's advocate, I've never looked at it kind of from that side of things where, you know, I'm the same way. Like, you know, when I was, you know, when I first started hunting, I mean, I was either hunting public or, you know, small parcels of, of private land here in Michigan. And since becoming, you know, a lot more serious about it and a lot more passionate about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I mean, I want, you know, I want to hunt 300 acres, right. I want to be able to, you know, yeah. keep the deer on my property instead of having them come right. onto my property because they're, you know, they're, they're bedding somewhere else. Correct. But then, yeah, we also want to, you know, recruit new hunters. We want to, you know, mentor people, get more people involved. And that's, yeah, where are you going to put everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's definitely something for that that I definitely want to think about some more. But, I mean, for our listeners, anyone that's going to check this out, you know, it's something that, you know, hopefully they kind of think about too and, you know, potentially, you know, ways that we can find a, a happy median instead of kind of going in the wrong direction, like you said. Yep. Yeah. Like I, it's one of those things, like it's a little, it's, it might be a little far-fetched and it might not happen anytime in the next couple of years, but if things continue to, you know, if they continue to trend the way they are, um, you know, are we getting to a situation where you're going to have some public land hunters and you're going to have some very wealthy, big landowner, big buck killers, Yeah. you know, what happens in the middle? Does the guy in the middle get squeezed to where he either a goes back to public or, you know, has to work more hours and make more money and buy a big chunk of ground. Yeah. So, or, or make some friends with those, uh, rich landowners. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and you know, one, one fear that I have is, is as hunting continues to evolve and, um, Snapchat, YouTube, and whatever ideologies are infiltrating, it seems like society nowadays, and less people hunt. And if they don't have people to teach them hunting, you know, I almost didn't become a hunter because I didn't have a teacher. Right. You know, my dad, my dad didn't hunt. So, um, what happens in the future as less and less people hunt? You know, is that the balance? Yeah. You know, um, I, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see where things track and trend. Yeah, because especially if you look, you know, when when like you and I, because we're we're pretty close to the same age, when you know we're at the end of our hunting careers, right? I mean, what's mm-hmm. what's coming behind us? Is it you know, yeah. is hunting going to just you know dry up almost, or is there going to be like this new wave of outdoorsmen, outdoors women of, of conservationists that are coming in and? And, and hopefully continuing to do things the right way and, and you know, mm. protect what we tried to help protect while we were involved. Yeah. Yeah. And I can tell you, I mean, I've got a 12 and 15 year old and, and, you know, they're starting to enjoy shooting their bows a little more yeah. and I don't care. Like I'll take them out on a muzzleloader hunt, you know, um, it, I just want them to get involved, but they haven't really shown a whole lot of interest in it. So I'm, I'm kind of just letting, hopefully letting it come to them naturally. 
But of course, under my breath, I'm like, how can you live in this house? (laughs) And, (laughs) And I mean, my family room looks like a taxidermy shop. And I was like, how can you not want to participate in this? You know, yeah. but they just, it just hasn't hit them, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it will. It's, I mean, you know, I remember when I, I mean, while I did, you know, hunt at that age, it wasn't, it was more just a way for me to spend time with my dad. It wasn't something that I was like super geeked about because, yeah, you know, for the most part, like I think about, you know, some of my early experiences, waterfowl hunting just were a shit show. Yeah, you know, filling up my waders, you know, hunting some flooded timber mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Or, you know, when I would go, when I was old enough to deer hunt with a rifle, you know, he would set me up in a spot and he'd be like, all right, I'll, you know, I'll come back and get you at dark or, you know, I'll come, you know, if we were hunting in the morning, I'll come get you in a few hours, you know, and, and a lot of times I didn't see anything and I just got cold, right? So it's, I think yeah, a lot of it yeah. is, uh, you know, just kind of letting them go through the process of, you know, getting the suck out of it a little bit and, and then starting to gain, yeah. you know, that appreciation for it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. So one of the things I, uh, I always like to ask my guests, um, kind of as we're wrapping things up here is, you know, what they have in store for this year. And, and obviously following along with you, I'm, uh, anticipating some pretty big things. So what do you have coming up for, uh, for the fall of this year? Um, so, well, right out of the gate, um, I've got uh, Montauk Island for some bluefin tuna fishing and some fly rod striper fishing. And then um, Big Sky Tack, uh, Snowbird Tack. And then when we get into the fall stuff, I'll start off back in Montana, uh, public land, archery, antelope. And then it gets real crazy because I go from Montana to Kentucky to just set a couple of trail cameras and then I shoot straight up to Delaware for velvet opener there, September 1st and then Kentucky velvet opener, September 4th and then Idaho elk. Um, then I get to come back home and start Iowa's opener October 1st and then finish out the year with Canada moose as long as the borders open by then. You do have a saint for a wife, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is uh That's I was, yeah. I was expecting a pretty uh, crazy list of things, but you have exceeded my expectations with that, man. That's going to be a whirlwind of a summer and into fall, and heck, even into yeah. the later part of the year. So that's that's awesome. That's a lot of big trips to look forward to. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be super fun. I mean, uh, you know, I'll have three, I'll have three hunts in. Um, I'm sorry, I'll have four four hunts in before Iowa's bow season even opens. So yeah. yeah, it's gonna be um it's gonna be a pretty crazy year. Last year was was uh was pretty was pretty jam-packed as well. And um this year actually there's there's uh one one extra trip, you know, squeezed in there. But yeah, man, it's a, it's a, it's a ton of fun and and I figure I don't know how many more years that physically and I can do this. So I'm just doing all I can while I can. And, you know, uh, any, if there's any listeners that were involved in law enforcement, um, they will definitely get this. Like, I don't have a fear of dying. I got over that fear like real quick, Yeah. but I have a genuine fear of dying before I get to do everything I want to do in life. So that's another thing that keeps pushing me, you know, with that work ethic is there's just still a lot of there's still a lot of 
bucket list items still yeah. on there that I need to check off. Well, yeah, no, it sounds like, uh, you, you know, you're just applying that work more hours mentality, um, to be able to get all that done and, and do the things you want to do and, mm-hmm. you know, supply a lot of awesome wild game for the family there. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we had to buy an extra deep freeze last year. Uh, so that, to me, that's not a bad problem. No. So real quick before I let you go here, John, uh, yep. where can people find uh bourbon barrel calls or, you know, in any of the stuff that you have going on there? Yep. So I'll go down the list. Um, Instagram, johnny.utah.hunt is, uh, is my main personal account. That's more of the day to day with a lot more IG stories and that kind of stuff. Um, arrow wild TV, is the show side of things. And then there's bourbon barrel calls. And then there's also Johnny Utah creative. Uh, so the Johnny Utah creative is going to focus on mostly just the client work that I do outside okay. of everything. Uh, bourbon barrel calls. That's going to be what that is. Uh, arrow wild TV is going to be more on the show based things. Cause there is some companies that work with my show. Um, Anybody that works with the show works with me personally, but then there are some people that work with me personally, but they're just like, Hey, we don't really do anything on a show format, you know, per se. So that, that creates, that's an Excel spreadsheet all in its own. It's just (laughs) keeping some of that stuff tracked and and keep it straight. But, um, the show itself is on carbon TV and YouTube. Um, last year was very fortunate to win carbon TV's best in hunting award on that network. Thanks. Thanks. That was really cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, any of those avenues, they can find me. Um, anybody will tell you I'm pretty responsive if somebody sends like a direct message or, yeah, I mean, that's how I reached out to you and and yeah, you were, you were super quick to respond and and yeah, we, I mean, we got this set up in, you know, 48 hours. Yep. Yep. So I try to respond to every, sometimes I'm responding at two in the morning, but Hey, you'll get it when you wake up in the morning. You yeah. know, it's like a little present. But uh, but yeah, I try to get back to everybody that I you know that I can, and um, genuinely, I mean, like thoroughly appreciate any support. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, I actually value like every like and every follow. It. You know what I mean? Like that stuff's important to me because you know, this is what I'm doing for a living and it's what I'm doing for me. And I think some people, sometimes they can get so big, they kind of lose focus in, in, you know, what they're doing. But, um, yeah, I, I, and I think that's why I like interacting with people, you know, on, on that, those, those social mediums as, as well as that it does give me a chance to talk to people and identify with what their problems are and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, you're, I mean, the, the, you're definitely a genuine dude, man. I mean, that comes across, you know, not, I mean, just in the last hour of talking to you and hearing some of your stories and, you know, you know, being, you know, wanting to, and being able to respond to everyone. I mean, it shows that, that you care and that, yeah, you do take that stuff seriously. So for sure. Oh, and it's, uh, you know, I, I've said this before, like I said, you know, I've been a rich man. I've been a poor man. I'm okay either way. You know what I mean? Like, I'm never going to sell out. And if I do, I'll tell you that I sold out and I'll tell you the dollar amount. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. and, and at 43 years of age, I'm also at that point where I'm close enough to the AARP bracket that I will speak my mind very clearly and plainly. <laughs> um, so I've never, nobody's ever told me, Hey man, you should probably speak your mind more. Yeah. <laughs> That'll never happen. Yeah. Um, and it sometimes gets me in trouble, but at the end of the day, people will, people will know that 
uh, I'm being honest. I'm being true. I'm genuine. I'm authentic. There's no, there's no BS and going on. Um, and, and that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, John, I really appreciate it, man. It was great getting to talk to you and likewise. And, yeah. And hearing your story and everything that you've got going on, man. I mean, uh, it, it was a blast. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, Hey, if you guys could do me a favor, go check out the average conservationist on social media. Be sure you're subscribing to all this guy's channels. I think he, I think he's pretty awesome. He had good questions and they weren't the normal questions that I get all the time. Yeah. So well, thank you for that. Good interviewer. All right. Thanks a lot, John. Take care, man. Yeah, man. See you brother. All right. All right. Well, thanks again to John for taking some time to uh, join me on the podcast today. I would also like to thank the partners, Stone Glacier and Go Hunt, as well as Wild Rivers Coffee Co. Uh, please be sure uh, to support the companies that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, I would also like to thank the 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only positive content so you'll enjoy that positive conservation-focused posts in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. I hope uh, everyone has a very safe and happy 4th of July this weekend. Uh, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you.